It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. I do need to confess something, though. Brian Fromm is playing hooky, as the kids say. I don't, I don't think kids say that anymore. But uh, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, on Twitter at Common Good Talk, or wherever it is you get your podcast, if that is you, if you like, subscribe, and review, all of that somehow does mystically, magically actually help us. And uh, if you like this episode, share it with a friend. But in Brian's absence... And he's always so intimidated when we have guests because he's always like, you bring in the smartest people. <laughs> and today is no exception. We have in the studio, Jenna Perrine. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Ian. So my guess is that plenty of people listening will know who you are, but plenty of others may not know who you are. So what, could you just introduce yourself however you see fit to the people that are listening? Oh, absolutely. Um, well, hi there. My name is Jenna Perrine, and I am... Originally from Belfast, Northern Ireland, if you catch a little of that in my sound. Um, I am a mental health therapist, I'm an artist, and I am a um, ministry professional pastor. Um, and I love talking about art, psychology, theology, um, and really enjoy any opportunity to get out of the house because I now have a three-month-old baby who is <laughs> awesome. But uh, this is just a nice kind of break from mothering right now as well. Well, and everything that you just listed are like my favorite things to talk about. So just so we have a public record of it, I made her promise to come back before <laughs> we even started because there's just no way. Let me just let you know briefly when we asked for talking points, she included psychology and theology, mental health as a Christian and lament, arts and theology, church commitment to beauty, to express sacramental life, brain science and liturgy. Like these are things I just cannot wait. So if you're just joining us, uh, don't go anywhere because this next hour is going to be, I think, fantastic. So I want to, <laughs> I want to kind of get into your head first a little bit because I think what is helpful for people is to know the person behind these interests. So, mm. like, how did you? That's a pretty interesting list of interests. How did that come to be for you? Oh, such a question. So I, <laughs> I, th- I hope I think you know, and I hope listeners uh, have some paradigm for the Enneagram. So this was like a big life saving thing for me mm. um, at a key moment. So I'm a four, and I feel like identity for a four is like my life journey that I'm going to keep exploring. Mm. Um, So I grew up in Northern Ireland and in Northern Ireland, these things were not readily accessible to me. Mm. And so talking about mental health, especially was not something that was like on the periphery. So I had my own mental health struggles as a teenager and as a young adult. And I just thought I was going crazy or that I was Mm. disqualified from the church or that my desire to be an artist uh, that create like, contributed meaningfully to the church was not going to go anywhere because I couldn't figure out how to feel or how to be who I was in a meaningful way. So that kind of started this quest of I need to like look into these things and care about them for myself. So I uh, ended up moving to the States to study uh, theology and Bible and along the way realized that the thing I wanted to bring into the church the most was a meaningful discussion about mental health. Mm. And I'm an artist at heart, and so trying to do that in a creative way right. and in a beautiful way matters. And um, so it's that's sort of the beginnings of it. Yeah. So what what do you think? This is an impossible question to answer, by the way. So here it goes. What does the church get wrong about mental health? Oh, 
<laughs> Which is, again, a big sweeping. Totally. Uh, well, to start constructively, I do feel like when you study this, the development of mental health, it did used to be taken care of within the church. Before we right. had the mental health counseling field and Freud, right. people would go to the church for their soul questions. Mm-hmm. I think that the quality of care they were getting from the church historically started to decline because mm. we made it more about uh, sin management than maybe like soul management like how do we care and tend to the soul so when mental health started to rise people were excited to go somewhere else other than the church and that's part of what i think we got wrong so today there's this new assumption i think that oh i need to get better somewhere else before i can come back to the church so the church is not that safe haven or that place where i can come with my mental health struggle or a broken right. heart or grief, I somehow need to go get fixed up somewhere else. Right. Um, and I'll come back to the church later. And I think that conversation's improving, but I do, for me, that was a big part of it. Like I had this m- assumption that I needed to go get fixed so that I could come back and participate right. as a whole person. Gosh. Well, and I remember even really the first time I started learning about theology, like at a scholarly level, yeah. I would have professors say, hey, uh, what Paul is writing here or what Solomon or Jeremiah for that matter, like they're arguably depressed absolutely suicide. and i was like wait what how have i never heard any of this yeah. so i began to realize uh, scripture does not hide these stories at all of people mm-hmm. in deep dark despair and yet the church seemed to be intent on yes. like hiding or shunning or shaming mm-hmm. or kind of prescribing like some really bad theological truism yes. and i'm curious like what what have you seen like done well then in that regard totally i think that the church is so um desires to share the good news and the gospel and to point people to resurrection Mm. um, that we forget that in order to participate in resurrection, we are a part of this paschal mystery where we're going to participate in also the death of Christ and his resurrection. And so that putting to death is all these good, beautiful things of seeing people in scripture hurting, crying out to God, Mm -hmm. um, having to be at war with that thorn in the flesh. Like there's this whole process of sanctification and dying that is part of the Christian life. Yeah. So my, my the big thing I always talk about is the practice of lament that is in scripture. I, I love to tell people it's God's idea. I promise it's yes. in scripture. I didn't come up with it. Right. At the, like a, almost a third of the Psalms, like if the Psalms was a playlist on Spotify, a third of them would be <laughs> these laments, these sad uh, crying out to God, yes. expressing your anguish kind of songs. Um, and we, as Christians, can, like David, like these other psalmists, like writes uh, laments and, and practice making our implicit pain explicit mm. before God. That's so good. Instead of repressing it or hiding it or pretending to the church that it's not there, God's actually given us this beautiful paradigm in Scripture for expressing pain in His presence. That's right. That's actually one of the things that I'll often say is that God would rather we yell at Him than leave Him. Yes. Right? That, like, lament and grief and sorrow brought before God is as much worship yes. as anything else we do. And yet it feels like so often the top 40 like worship hits that are often sung in churches, none of them are anywhere close to lament. Do you uh, see that happening elsewhere? Is that is that something uh, that we're getting better at? I, I mean, first of all, just completely agree. Like it's always <laughs> up into the right, right in worship. Of course, of course. Um, and and I, I, for me, at least as a congregant in a pew, that was not always attractive. There were mm. Sundays where I would come in and it would have been completely appropriate to have a slower, sadder, um, less completely resolved song sung. Right, um, right. And, it, you know, as an advocate for arts, it doesn't always have to be sung worship. It could right. be spoken word. It could be um, just even having art in your church that is um, depicting grief and all these difficult mm. things that we wrestle with as Christians. Um, but I do think that's something that we really can have more of, need more of. And 
I'm starting to see artists like encourage it a little bit more. Like okay. maybe there's one sad song on the album these days. <laughs> it's like the the it's record like labels track, are letting right? us have one secret track. It's the EP, really. <laughs> right, right. If you get the extended play, then maybe you can experience the sadness. Yeah. I'm curious. That's kind of all right. So that's a good teaser because I want to ask you next. Uh, how do we actually create language that communicates the value of lament and sorrow? within our sacred spaces because I, f- I feel like so often it comes down to a bottom line mm. and if what you're saying is true and I 100% believe that it is often I think that's met with yeah but our people don't want to hear that they yes. come here to escape right oh. so we can't bother them with lament the world's already sad enough totally you know? and the statistics are against you because right. again quick plug today is mental health awareness day for the whole world yes. and the statistics are against that people yes. in our pews statistically are struggling just as much with depression anxiety a whole host of different mental health things and they're still christians that's you absolutely know? true amen well said all right well i think you all are probably seeing now why i'm so thrilled that jenna's gonna be with us <laughs> for the entire hour today we're going to continue to talk mental health and lament and brain science and psychology and therapy in the local church and i think at the end of that you still have hope for it all. Absolutely. So we're going to talk about all that next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is, let's say, gallivanting. <laughs> I'm going to assume, I'm not really sure what that word means. Let's just assume that's what he's doing and he's having a great time, but he'll be back next week. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, wherever it is you get your podcast. but I'm so thrilled to have in the studio, incarnate, right here, right at AM 1160, Jennifer Ryan. And we're talking about mental health and lament. We're going to talk about therapy and counseling and brain science. But you, I actually think this is worded perfectly. You, you wrote, what are some of the biblical tools that can be used in church and in therapy to recognize the range of emotion and the need for healing? I, I so want to know your answer to that question. Yes. Well, so we were talking a little bit about this already, but... My first go-to is to say lament. Lament is God's idea. Right. It is an incredible practice in Scripture and that we can use for healing. And I believe in this so much. Um, and I got to kind of workshop and develop a lot of this content um, when I was working at a community called The Practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, basically, uh, as a therapist, I would get to a place with my Christian clients in particular who wanted to feel all of these things, but still wanted to be a Christian. And I would always say, you can do both. Like, this doesn't disqualify you from God's presence. Let me walk you through how to write your own lament. So I uh, have done teaching on this and have created a resource on this um, that I love to give away for free all the time to therapists, to individuals, to churches. And I'm like, use this, teach your people, like hold a workshop on this, like write a I used to have this dream of, you know, 10 people in a room, everybody would write their own lament and then we'd share mm. it like a poetry workshop. Mm. And it's really fun when that happens. I just did that, actually. It's, it's beautiful. It really like is. to ha- Even to have a, like a sad dinner where everybody comes over and uh, <laughs> it doesn't have to be sad. It can be beautiful, but where that. somebody shares like what they've written. Um, so very quick plug. If you go to jennaperine.com, yes. I'm giving this resource away for free, especially in light of at Mental Health Awareness Day, I just want churches and Christians to have this resource as a way to express before God the things that they're going through yes. and to do it in a biblical way. That's so good. And to say, to say the best thing about lament, you start in a place of pain, but you end in a place of appropriate hope. Mm. Um, and it may take you a long time to write it. You may not sit down in one sitting and be able to you know, go through this complete healing journey all at once. But it is beautiful to see when you read laments that they, they often start with a lot of honesty and yet mm. they end with this affirmation of trust. Yes. Yet you're still God. Oh. In the midst of all this awfulness, yet I will trust you. Come on. That's so good. That's, and I, was, I actually had a professor that really 
he's an Old Testament scholar, mm-hmm. but he uh, specialized in the Psalms in particular. And even when he talked about Psalm 88, the, mm-hmm. the saddest chapter in yes. all the scripture, he would call it. He said it doesn't even necessarily end with any hope, but it begins yes. with this cry to mm-hmm. God, showing mm-hmm. some sense of, God, I don't know what you're doing in the midst of this, yes. but I'm still going to direct it toward you. And mm-hmm. for anyone that was just scrambling for a pen, Jenna Perrine, that's J-E-N-N-A-P-E-R-R-I-N-E. We'll put that on the Facebook page. Beautiful. I'll mention it like 12 more times <laughs> this hour, if that's okay. Absolutely. But the other thing, though, that's so unique about you, though, is you also see a great value in integrating art into these expressions, right? Mm-hmm. You talk about like sacramental imagination. Can you talk about some of that significance? Yes. So my husband and I, my husband, John, is um, an Anglican pastor, and we have been on this long difficult, joyful journey into the Anglican church. Um, and it started with liturgy and kind of uh, where could the arts be expressed in a way that was still connecting with our hearts. Mm. So we both went to you know Bible school together and then seminary together. And I feel like most seminarians have this difficulty where they start to go to church and they stop connecting as much with it or they're only engaging with their head and they don't know how to engage with their heart again or their Mm. body again and so for me the arts are this uh, and we see this in psychology as well the moment you start engaging artistically that right side of the brain the entire body and whether that's dance theater um, physical arts uh, design like all these beautiful things video like there's some incredible beautiful Mm -hmm. videos being made these days um, there is something about the arts that accesses um, theology in a different way, mm. brings it to life. So for me, I'd already spent, you know, like four years in lectures. Right. I love the lectures, <laughs> but I was like, I don't need to go to church for more lecture. Mm. Um, so to me, I was like trying to figure out where can I get more beautiful experiences? Yes. So the Anglican church uh, is not the only church that does this, but we find there kind of this uh, engagement with sacramental imagination and sacrament in a nutshell it's kind of like holy mystery. Like, mm-hmm. how do we have imagination around the holy mysteries of God and his scripture? Yes. Um, so just very simply, church history used to do this all the time. I, I grew up in Europe. I went to a bajillion cathedrals growing up. <laughs> and they had great imagination to mm-hmm. be like, what would the Last Supper look like? Let's paint that. What would heaven look like? Let's build a cathedral that points to that. Right. And they would partner art with these beautiful theological truths all the time, even if they got it wrong. You know, they would gesture at it. They imagine it and see. So I'm all for encouraging Christians to uh, use the arts and their yes. imagination um, to imagine like what what are these beautiful realities right. like? And again, to talk about lament, lament is how do you imagine what this tough reality looks mm. like? But the arts are very important to me and I love promoting them in the church as much as possible. That's so good. I remember when I was first learning about the transcendentals yes. in the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. right? Truth, goodness, beauty. So yes. truth is sort of your doctrine piece yep. goodness is sort of your ethics piece and then i remember reading about beauty thinking i don't know anything about this one like i was really <laughs> handed the first two yep. at least growing up in sort of a midwest evangelical mm-hmm. expression which they did really really well yep. but no one had talked to me about like the actual value the theological oh, significance mm-hmm. of beauty it was mm-hmm. like beauty's nice if you have extra time yes. or extra resources if you can like afford to pay an artist like do you see some of that where like beauty's nice if you got the bandwidth but don't worry about it oh totally really? and, you know you see it historically as well like mm. that move you know after the reformation to kind of say we're going to strip down our churches and make them as naked as possible like it's you know you're going to walk in right. and it'll be four gray walls and we're going <laughs> to dwell on Christ in our right. brains but how dare we look at him anywhere else <laughs> and I you know I, I laugh but I was that person once upon a time no that was kidding. like I don't understand the art I don't understand 
understand. And, uh, and, you know, honestly, there it was growing up in Northern Ireland. There's a big split between Northern Irish Catholics and Northern Irish Protestants. Mm -hmm. And I grew up as a Protestant, not really knowing what that meant, but it, I was very fearful of the Catholic Church, didn't know how to engage Mm. the good parts of it. And I only knew how to talk about the negative or the frustrating parts. So becoming Anglican was this kind of uh, via media middle way between Mm -hmm. Protestants and Catholics where I could start to like let myself appreciate the art a little bit more and kind of (laughs) re-engage like actually I might be a little tired of a completely blank space. Right. Um, There was a great pastor who talked about how sad it was in some ways when America in particular started to you know purchase malls to repurpose for churches Um, and it's great that we have the wealth and resources to celebrate God in that way but a mall was not ever built with the intention of God in mind and Mm -hmm. so we can repurpose it and there's a beauty in that Uh, but there is sometimes you walk into these new spaces and it could be you know an office building or it could be a church and that is there's something that has been lost in that and so trying to uh, bring beauty back into the church you know I think the old church would laugh at us and be like what do you mean we (laughs) used to be the best artists in society (laughs) Um, and now we're struggling to have it be as big a part of our architecture our painting our creating you know well, and sometimes, unfortunately, it feels like Christians are almost the butt of the joke when it comes yes. to artistic expression. Like, or oh, the it's worst Christian movies. Music, or yeah. the worst movie, right, any of that. Like, it's <laughs> almost a punchline. Yes. I remember really learning about sacred spaces and, like, the Quakers, you mm-hmm. know, historically had very plain, very ordinary. Yep. And learning that cathedrals, like you said, yes. were meant to evoke this wonder and awe. <laughs> but the Quakers built their spaces to evoke sort of the communal nature of yes, God. I'm yes. like, oh, they both have value. Absolutely. But when when we do one at the complete dismissal of the other, mm-hmm. then it's sort of like, that's when we get lopsided. Absolutely. Right? And that middle ground is, you know, my favorite thing these days. I'm probably too pursuing the middle all the time. <laughs> um, but I really do love the idea that um, we're, we're going after awe, just having awe of God. Yes. And it doesn't need to be a cathedral or an incredible... Um, you know, my husband and I really loved, we were in Barcelona and went to see like the beautiful, yes. uh, like I'm blanking on its name right now, but just like the the grand uh, cathedral that they have there. And we were like, this is phenomenal. Mm. But the best part of it was that um, artists throughout the ages were allowed to bring their art for that time to mm. the cathedral. So it started off Gothic and by the end it was very modern and it looked different with each age and it didn't have wow. to always be this one thing. So that collaborative, that. it could look Quaker, it could look Catholic or Anglican. Anglican or right. whatever it is, but beauty matters. Um, and I'm saying this to beauty in the comments. So there's a sense <laughs> of it, just finding it where you are. Yeah, that's that's so good. Well, that other voice you're hearing is not Brian Fromm. That's Jenna Prine. And she's going to stick with us for two more segments for the rest of the hour. We're talking art and the mint and psychology and counseling and therapy. And what does it mean to be the church in an age that is so distracted by everything, it seems. So I'm going to pick your brain about a whole list of things coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, Brian Fromm is MIA, but you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, on Twitter, at Common Good Talk, or 1160hope.com, slash The Common Good, and all the previous shows are there, and you can listen at twice the speed, which I don't know if I should be insulted by that or not, but a lot of people do it, just to, <laughs> you know, get through it as fast as they can. But that other voice you've been hearing is Jenna Perrine, and she is talking about all sorts of my favorite things, <laughs> and the thing that I think I've been most excited today to talk to you about is brain science in liturgy, this idea of embodiment and does these, the, do these liturgical expressions have any impact on like our physiology at all? And that's something that I know that you love talking mm-hmm. about too. So why don't you just walk us through the stuff that you're learning and experiencing? 
Okay, well, let me start off by saying um, liturgy was something that took me a little bit of time to warm up to. And so the reason that I even um, have you know, any research on brain science and liturgy was before I started to worship like an Anglican or even be open to liturgy in my spiritual life, I kind of needed to figure out what is going on here because I grew up with a lot of suspicion towards it. And my fear was that it was dry, dusty, um, and I didn't know how to actually understand how it was worshipful. Right. So uh, as a therapist and a psychologist a nerd, I was like, okay, there's got to be something going on with the brain with how these things work. So I uh, find it very rich and meaningful. I love sharing the insights and I basically have a big three that I go into Mm. with people Um, and the first one is to do with repetition. So if you've been in a liturgical church and you're following like an order of uh, worship, you'll see that, you know, every week they pretty much do the same thing. They repeat it over and over again. And this, by the way, is not just true of, you know, more traditional churches, you know, any church has a repetitive kind of thing that they're doing. Um, but repetition is this beautiful, important thing in the brain. And I, when I teach this in a workshop, I always talk about like make a fist with your right hand and look at it like it's your brain. Mm. And if you were to look at your brain from the outside, it would be very gray. But if you open up your hand and look at your palm and pretend that we've like unspooled your brain, mm. um, you would actually see a lot of white matter. And that white matter is called myelin. And it is the connective tissue in the brain that helps us um, transport thoughts and make connections from one part to the other. Mm. So when we have very little myelin in our mind, it's kind of like a a line of dominoes. Like you you touch the first one and it hits the next one and the next one and the next one until we get to our conclusion. Mm. So the first time you do something and you've never repeated it before, like confession, like kneeling for confession, um, you know, you really don't have a lot of white matter around that part of the brain. It's completely new. The more you repeat it, it stops being like a line of dominoes. And I always say it starts becoming more like Nightcrawler from the X-Men where you teleport from one part to the other almost instantaneously. You don't even have to um, trigger as much of a a pathway in the brain. So it's faster. And why this matters, uh, the nerd part of me always has to like (laughs) calm down, is that uh, the more you repeat something, the less of your brain has to be used to consciously concentrate and the more it's freed up to be creative and to engage the moment in a different way. So people always are like, I have my best ideas when I'm brushing my teeth or when I'm in the shower. Like I love being creative in the shower. And I'm like, well, like that's because <laughs> you repeat that ritual so often that you don't even have to think about it. Wow. You know, you're reaching for shampoo, but you're thinking about, oh, I just had the idea for how I'm going to get, you know, this pitch to work at work. Right. Um, and that's because there's so much white matter that it's um, instantaneous. It's freeing up beautiful brain space to work on other things. Wow. So the church is awesome because it started to incorporate repetition and its worship patterns in such a way that when you go to church and people say, okay, let us pray, you bow your head, you uh, right. put your hands together, right. and it's like getting you into a state of prayer where you're wow. repeating something, and at the same time, your brain is creating more space to actually uh, dwell and think about God yes. and theology and deeper things. It's a beautiful thing. So that's wow. the, the first one. It's like repetition and myelin. Love it. The second one that I love to talk about is um, embodiment. And uh, if you've been to a liturgical church, you'll notice that they get you to participate a lot. Yes. You do not get to just like sit and watch <laughs> as much. And that freaked me out initially. I was like, why do I have to read that? Why do I have to stand right now? Right. Um, and I just felt like this is your job. Like you're meant to be <laughs> leading me. Um, but over, so I, I did a dive. I was like, why are we doing this? Mm. And uh, what I saw is that embodiment in church, um, the use of our bodies, the use of our participation where we're standing, kneeling, 
bowing our heads, closing our eyes, um, or reading aloud corporately as a group. Mm. It's using this beautiful principle from psychology called the enactment effect. Mm. It's a very simple principle that just says um, when you do something, you are far more likely to remember it and to internalize it mm. than if you simply hear it or if you simply see it. Right. Um, I'm going to totally butcher this, but I always make a joke that when I was like <laughs> researching this, I found this poem by Confucius. And I used to, I put it in the talk and I showed it to my husband and he was like, why is Confucius in your talk? <laughs> and I was like, he's a church father. Like, why wouldn't I quote him? And he was like, no, no, Jenna, you need to do some research on him. <laughs> but it has prevailed because he basically uh, teaches this enactment principle very well. And it's something along the lines of, um, I hear and I forget. I see and I understand, but I do it and I, I never forget it. Like wow. it's always a part of my life is wow. kind of the beauty of it. So again, I, I see such wisdom in the church that they, from a bring and science standpoint, we're like, let's get our bodies involved. If yes. we just sit and talk at our people, um, they're going to forget it. And especially when everyone did not have a Bible or right, access to right. the word, they had to get creative. So let's read together. Let's have you all stand in moments mm. of respect and honor, like when the gospel is about to be read. Let's yes. have you kneel in moments of contrition, like confession. Um, and then let's have beautiful, um, like I love this part in our service every week is when the gospel is read, the person who's reading the gospel walks it in and among the people. Yes. So all the other uh, readings from scripture kind of happen from the front, but because Christ is incarnate and because he became one of us, on. uh, the gospel is always read among us. So the word come, becomes flesh among us once again. It's that's very so cool. Good. So that's a beautiful part of embodiment, like actually bringing physicality into our theology. And I love that. Um, and then the final thing I love to talk about is silence uh, and solitude. There were all these parts of the liturgical service that I didn't understand where we were very quiet. And mm. uh, maybe there would be a silent moment for confession. Um, and maybe even outside of a worship service, I was trying to become more spiritually formed. And there was all this encouragement to, you know, take a day of silence and solitude. And I didn't understand right. why or right. why that would be helpful. Right. Um, and another principle from psychology that really helped me understand this was mindfulness and mm. I always say mindfulness is having a moment right now like there's a hundred apps on the app store that right. help you be mindful that help <laughs> you do this and uh, basically you know to cut a long story short there's two brain pathways that are very important to know about on a day-to-day -day basis there's the narrative pathway which is uh, where you think about stories and you're kind of you know going a b c d e f you're like going through a process and then there's the direct network and the direct network is just you being present in this moment so mindfulness mm. is helping us switch from the narrative network to the direct experience network. And when we're in the direct experience network, we calm down, our amygdala shrinks, we experience mm. less fear. We're able to be uh, much more present to our senses. And wow. again, we're more creative than when we're wow. in that narrative space. We're problem solving in the narrative and we are um, relaxed and open to new solutions when we're in the direct network experience. So again, I think church history is quietly smiling because they're like, hey, our people are constantly yes. in the past or in the future. They're going, going, going all the time. Let's slow them down. Let's have them be silent. Let's have them switch over to the direct experience network through silence and solitude um, and even deep breathing, centering prayer. All these practices are beautiful ways to access that kind of mindfulness headspace. 
And once you're there, you're able to experience God in a very different way yeah, than when right. you're listening to a lecture. So we can't be silent all the time, right. but you should find moments in your day, in your week, in your worship where you're able to be silent mm-hmm. in that direct uh, experience network. And there you encounter God in a beautiful, different way. See, I feel like, too, if people had been given what you just said earlier in their childhood, they We'd wouldn't have felt scared. like they had to run away from it. Right. I meet <laughs> totally. people all the time. I had a lady who's like, you said meditate in the sermon the other day, and that makes me really uncomfortable. Yeah. I was like, let's talk about why. Totally. You don't have to be afraid of that word. And I think, gosh, not to oversell, I think honestly what you just shared is going to be absolutely transformative for people mm. who have never heard any of this before to know you don't have to be afraid of it. In fact, it's like built into our physiology to actually help us mm-hmm. encounter the divine, which I think is just, just lovely. We've been listening to Jennifer Ryan. She's going to stick around for one more segment And we're going to talk about maybe all of this again. (laughs) Let's just repeat all of this for anyone that's just joining us. For the brain science. Right. All of that. Exactly. That's all coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. I feel like all of our rejoin music has been so positive, by the way. (laughs) It's on a random loop. Yeah. The irony of like talking about like lament Mm. is that every one of the songs has just been at 11. It's been ridiculous. Why not? I I wish I could say that was strategic. It was not. Uh, That other voice that you're hearing is Jenna Perrine, and she has a website. I want to make sure that you know about this website because there are some free resources there. That's J-E-N-N-A. P-E-R-R-I-N-E dot com. We'll probably say it a couple more times if that's okay, but please (laughs) go check it out because I just think you have a wealth of wisdom. And we were talking about this when you got into the studio too, that you just became a mama like three months ago, right? Oh, yes. It feels both like yesterday and an eternity. (laughs) So. I think but, every mom is just cheering you right yeah, now, like, like yes. What? And I, yeah, three months in, and I'm on the radio. You can do it too. It's possible. <laughs> you just need to lose your That's mind. Perfect. <laughs> in uh, the process. Well, one of the totally. things that you're actually engaging, and then I think this is such an important conversation, is mental health in a season of mothering. Something that I, you know, having kids for the first yes. time, I'm now getting a front row seat to even some of the conversations that my wife is having. Mm-hmm. Stuff that I didn't know anything about, to be honest. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that new effort there? Yes. Well, and honest, you know, just real talk uh, as a mental health therapist and a first time mom, I feel like very vulnerable wading into this space because I Mm. keep feeling like I need to present in a way that it's easy, that I'm totally (laughs) on top of it, that nothing has affected me. And that's just not true. Mm. And the more I lean into that, the more I keep thinking I probably need to talk more about it to um, I can't just keep lifting stigma. And that's, mm. you know, I've always had that desire to lift stigma, stigma for mental health in the church. And now I feel like I want to do it from mothering because it's this Love new it. like branch of my world. Um, so all this to say, we have a beautiful baby girl. Her name is Hazel. She's three months old on Tuesday. And, you know, we, we prayed for her. We waited for her. We had a, you know, a beautiful pregnancy with her. Um, praise God. It was mm. not um, that difficult, but I just remember we basically did a lot of hard things all at once. And by the way, if you didn't also do these things while you had a baby, it was still a hard thing. Yes, so it's right, just like right. to give context. <laughs> but we uh, moved from the suburbs back into the city. We started a new job at a, a new church location within wow. our diocese. Um, I left the job. We packed up our house and we like physically took all those boxes to a new space. We changed communities and it was all these good things. It was like we right. were giving birth to so many good things and mm-hmm. um, that I thought, oh, surely this is all got to be all joy 
<laughs> and uh, her middle name is Joy. And that's actually been like a big me- like meditation and thing mm. I think about every day is joy is not the same thing as happiness. Yeah. Um, it's a it's really easy to confuse those things. Yeah. And she like being a mother does not always make me incredibly happy. In fact, a lot of the days and um, there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of uh, we were talking about this beforehand, like decision, uh, par- like paralysis. We were yes. like, what do I do? I really don't know. Um, and a lot of tears, not just her tears, my mm. tears. Yep. And I have almost been seizing all these other mothers around me, like lifelines being like, number one, you're amazing. And I don't think I told you before I had a kid, but now I think you're even more amazing. And number two, how often do you cry? Because I feel like I'm crying (laughs) a lot. And it's been amazing to start that conversation because uh, moms are great. And the majority that I've been uh, pulling into this conversation are really open. um, However, I wish had been more open before I'd had the baby. It felt like Mm. I was talking all the time about uh, the labor and the pregnancy, but I was not getting to talk a ton about what comes after the delivery, Mm. like the struggle of breastfeeding. It's like a a conversation with your child that does not always go well. And I was like, I feel like we're yelling at each other. I feel like (laughs) this interaction is really stressful and hard. Um, And so... Again, all this to say, as a therapist, I was aware categorically of things like the baby blues and postpartum depression and mm. postpartum anxiety. Um, and I thought, I've got a toolkit. Like, I know how to use all these things. And I'm just going to, you know, ninja my way out of having to struggle with these things. Right. But, you know, if, if it's your chemistry, if it's in your family history, if it's been part of your life before, right. it shouldn't surprise us when it comes up again. Um, and I personally do have a, a family history and a personal history mm. with kind of fluctuating mood and, and being low. And it was like the first six weeks were awesome. And then kind of week seven, week eight, I just started to realize I'm feeling like low. Like I'm really? feeling like I need to talk about this more. I need more support. I need to really um, humble myself again because mm. that's often what it feels like to get help in mental health world and realize like, oh, yeah, I'm a mental health therapist. I'm a big advocate for this. But I myself still need yes. the community care, the self-care, and I just need to talk about it. So that has been huge. And I'm still wading into it. And it's just, again, I think this beautiful thing that I love to hold together. Like when I say you can be a Christian and still um, have mental health concerns, you can be a mother who loves your baby to pieces. And I think my kid is the most incredible thing in my life. And at the same time, you can be sleep deprived and low and frustrated um, and just in like a haze of kind of that mom brain. And I think there's like a level of parenting that's like, that's just what everyone's going through. But there is a trap door that once you open it and kind of go down the rabbit hole, where you know it is mental health stuff again and you really do need to realize that this is a season of life where you're very vulnerable and um, most moms really don't feel like they're allowed to be vulnerable it's like Mm. I have to be tougher I need to look awesome and (laughs) I had this day where I was like why am I trying to make mothering look easy to everybody I feel like everyone kept being like you have such an easy kid look at you in a restaurant we we like took our baby to girl in the goat um, and she like slept the whole way through dinner and everyone was like oh this is just such an incredible kid like and the whole time I was thinking why am I trying to perpetuate right. the image that this was easy and that I didn't have to spend all day planning for this like one hour of quiet? Right. Um, and so I just I just want to plug that right now. And if you're a mom who at all like me is just new to this first time mom, um, just grace upon grace upon grace and yes. talk about it as much as possible. I'm talking about it on the radio because I'm just like I really uh, needed to be honest with myself yeah. that this is a vulnerable time. Well, I, I really do want to say thank you for sharing that because yeah. I know that that's no small task and it's been one of the greatest joys of my life 
to become a parent and see yeah. my wife become just this incredible mom, mm-hmm. but also share honestly about like, yeah. there are days it is way harder than any of these moms totally. are really letting on. So for you to share that, oh. I think is massively significant. And I, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, there's this uh, like theological concept I'm wrestling with because mm. I have to do something with my mind while yeah. like we're just doing naps and like dishes and stuff. <laughs> and it's kind of this idea that, you know, becoming a parent is like preparing to sacrifice on a deeper level. Mm. And I think, you know, single married parent you know it can happen in a lot of different ways but i used to think you know oh i'm pregnant and this is preparing me to you know have a fuller life a happier life and those things are true but ultimately it's been this like almost uh, kind of like the passion like walking with christ towards the cross and realizing Mm. that the end goal of this is not that my child's going to make me feel awesome it's that i'm going to learn how to sacrifice even more um and that's kind of what marriage was like learning how to lay my life down for my husband but now it's like i lay it down for my child Mm. and it's way harder than for my spouse because he can say thank you after I do something and I'm like okay that was sacrificial but I still feel this like romance connection I get the dopamine in the brain exactly (laughs) whereas uh, you can do everything right with your kid take great care of them all day and they can still be screaming in the middle of the night or uh, my child is very slow to social smile so she's very serious right now and I keep being like do you want to smile for me do you want to reward me for all the things I just did and there's been these moments where I felt um, actually like the purpose of this season is to prepare to sacrifice and not to lose everything that I am and who I am, but like Christ to lay down my life so that the most beautiful thing, new life can be born. And and that's a big identity wrestling for mothers. Who am I now that I'm a mother? Does that mean that I've lost all these things before? Um, No, but there is a laying down and I'm really going to press into that. I can tell in her lifetime, how do I sacrifice even more as her mother? Goodness, what? What a way to end this hour. Jenna, it has been a joy and a delight, and I want to bookend my request. Please come back. <laughs> I would love to. We would love to have you back on the show. Thank you again. I cannot encourage you enough. Go to her website, jennaperine.com. There's some free resources there. Can they contact you through the website, too, if they have questions? I believe so, yes. Yeah. Okay, perfect. jennaperine.com. Can't encourage you enough. Thank you so much for joining us today. What a gift you've been to our audience. You've been Thanks, listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you here today. You still awake? You good? Mm, hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we would just do 10 minutes of you going, mm. <laughs> I have been working on my circular breathing. I could have maintained that for a long time. Just give people, a, just a, I know you don't want this to be about you, so right. we'll only do it once. Oh, no. But just give people a, an idea. When we're talking about uh, you're working on little sleep, give people just a, an idea of what we're talking about. Oh, like an actual minute yeah, account? Because when you said it to me, I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Today, just last night. Right, just last night. This isn't normal. I think I'm on, we'll say less than three, Ooh. which in college I felt I was fine with. Did you ever, were you ever that guy in college? I, uh, yes. You yes. Could like get two and a half and you're like, yeah, let's go uh, yeah. for a jog. Yep, yep. Let's go, uh, let's play tennis. Yep. Like I am 
not in college anymore. You, you would like have that night where you wrote a paper and you got like two, and then you uh-huh. went all day and you're like, oh, tomorrow next night I can catch up, and then that right. next night your buddy's like, you want to go to Taco Bell at 30? Yes, I, I do. <laughs> for us, it was El Faro in Elgin, Illinois, but yes, oh, same thing. For us, it was Taco support, Bell. And support Wheaton. local economy, Brian. So sometimes I remember we went through a Dunkin' Donuts stage, but then it turned into Taco Bell for a long time. Yes, that did not help the waistline. <laughs> I was gonna say, are you still in that season? People, Is that? No, people would be like, oh, the freshman fifteen, you don't have to worry about that. Wheaton. I'm like, I do for other reasons. <laughs> Wait, why don't you have to worry about that at Wheaton? Because it's not a drinking thing, the freshman 15. Oh, it might be. Look at how homeschooled I am. <laughs> <laughs> Does alcohol make you gain weight, Brian? A lot of it, yes, yes. <laughs> so apparently uh, that was one. Well, you're going to appreciate this next story because of your life circumstances. So we're in the middle of the uh, baseball playoffs, the American League and the National League Championship Series. In the National League Championship Series, you've got the St. Louis Cardinals playing the Washington Nationals. Mm-hmm. So the games one and two were this weekend, uh, and they were um, they were compelling because the Nationals had no hitters in both games going into the eighth <laughs> and the next game into the seventh. Oh, goodness. So I'm going to hurt your feelings here. You're a Detroit Tigers fan, right? Yeah. Did right. you see the stat? I no. So this was game for the Nationals. It was Annabelle Sanchez in game one, uh, Max Scherzer game two, and no two pitchers had thrown... Five innings back-to-back of no-hit baseball in the playoffs since Annabelle Sanchez and Max Scherzer for the Detroit Tigers in 2015. 14. Oh, no kidding. Yep, and then you got Verlander going yeah, for that. Yeah, right, Your team right. could be awesome right now. <laughs> oh, man. That's You're okay. right. That does sting. You're rebuilding. <laughs> yeah, so, we've been saying that for a while. So the Nationals, their closer is a guy by the name of Daniel Hudson. And Daniel Hudson uh, is an unbelievable story. He has played for six teams. He has had two Tommy John surgeries and never been in the playoffs, I believe. This is the first time he'll at least play a pivotal role in the playoffs. Uh, he's the closer for the Washington Nationals. Well, leading up to game one, uh, Daniel Hudson took paternity leave. Uh, at, because he wanted to be there for the birth of their uh, third child. So his wife, Sarah, uh, and baby Millie were born happy and healthy. But this kind of set off a bit of a uh, a bit of an uproar. So former Mar- Miami Marlins president David Sampson on Twitter, for example, wrote this. Unreal that Daniel Hudson is on the paternity le- list and missing game one of the NLCS. Only excuse would be a problem with the birth or health of baby or mother. If all is well, he needs to get to St. Louis. Inexcusable. Will it matter? <laughs> and that's what he wrote. And there was this amazing back and forth. So all, of, cool his, guy. all of his teammates, yeah, his wife must be thrilled. <laughs> yeah, right. You so, went on public record saying this? Twitter. Yikes. So all of his teammates were more than supportive, right? They were more su- of supportive Um But there was this undercurrent on Twitter, this undercurrent in the baseball world that said he should, that this is borderline inappropriate that he's missing playoff games. People are going, oh, he could miss, you know, uh, regular season games. But this is the NLCS. The mom is doing fine. You're getting paid a lot of money. This is what you signed up for. And it was amazing to watch this go back and forth. And then the way the game played out. He would have pitched game one. Like, they right. actually needed a closer. The Nationals ended up winning. So his manager and the teammates were, like, really cool about it. They were they're mm. making jokes. They were mm. like, no. And one of his teammates was like, if you're saying that he shouldn't have been at the birth of his child, you're a moron. Like, kind of back and forth. <laughs> uh, so wondering. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. I'm being baited here, aren't I? Just wondering your take on it. Because, quite frankly, 
uh, I was surprised that it was even an issue. But the whole, like, you make a lot of money, this is what you're paid to do, you need to get to the game... Uh, wondering, uh, wondering your <laughs> thoughts on this—the the fact that it was even a, a hot button thing flying around this weekend. I'm so tired of men being shamed mm. for putting their family first. I'm so tired of it. This well, whole—well, if it was a regular season, go for it. But because of where we're at, this is where it crosses the threshold of being more important than your family. That's kind of the subtext, right? She's fine. So, I mean, again, it's a very you know stereotypically male utilitarian way to think about it. Like, she's <laughs> physically healthy. Like, yeah, there's other things she at didn't play have here. the chance not to be there. Right, ex- exactly. <laughs> but this, like, and again, I get, I get that it's just a tweet, but this whole, like, she's fine. What's the big deal? Like, yeah. There's more than her just not dying that is important for the husband and father to be around. Like, I think it's crazy to me. And I don't know. It makes me more frustrated than it probably should to see. Because I think this is all, already such an issue. You know, yeah. sort of the, the workaholism, the work before family, the the whack priorities. Like, I, my brother back home in Detroit took full advantage. And I so respect him for it. His uh, law firm gave him, I want to say... Something like 10 weeks paternity leave. Wow. Or something bonkers. He's like, I'm taking every single day of that. And he's got a bunch of kids. And so he was able to just be there with his kids and his wife. And, and he caught some flack for that, for sure. You know, and like, you know, and you're making making good money. What are you doing staying at home? He's like, this is my, this will always be my first priority. Yeah. You know, just because you Ten dangle. Weeks. Right. I forget. That might be not exactly right, but it was something pretty remarkable like that. And I, yeah, I, again, that's sort of my general sense is that we need to do a better job of like coaching and cheering the the guys and the girls yep. the men and women that are making their family a priority even when the stakes are high and even when you know maybe culture otherwise would be tempted to shame you for it i i applaud him for it matt uh hudson said this uh he said my wife she's a rock star she's been around the game as long as i have she knows kind of what's going on obviously we didn't exactly plan to have a baby in the middle of the playoffs but <laughs> You plan something and stuff goes crazy. And he also went on to say, I knew I was going no matter what, uh, said Hudson, who praised the Nationals for their understanding and indeed encouragement. So that's cool that the, that the team itself was like, get there. Right. He said, my family is top priority for me. I heard somebody say one time, baseball's what I do. It's not who I am. Interesting. Preach. We talk about that a lot. We do. And kind of once you and kind of once you have kids or once I had kids, it really resonated with me. So to be able to be part of that was awesome. I do think it's just interesting that people are like, nobody's saying that no, it's interesting in some of these comments back and forth, nobody was ever saying no dad should take and be there for their parent, but they're like, but you have an important job that right. pays a lot of right. money and it's the playoffs. You should. That's the subtext. It was, it was just interesting. A lot of baseball like lifers, they were like, I can't believe he's doing this. And you're like, I think there's something generational here too. It was just such uh, a weird kind of brew over the weekend. That's a good point. The generational thing. Although, I don't know. I know a lot of people, my grandparents' age, that their entire lives have made a a habit of prioritizing family yes. and not doing it perfectly. And I'm not saying I, it's easy for you and I, like in a, you know, in a studio with microphones, not making millions of dollars. We're not. <laughs> no, no. But you know what I mean? Like it's, yep. the, you know, we're, we're pontificating a little bit here, but. And again, I'm saying this as someone who's often getting it wrong in terms of priorities, in terms of bandwidth, mm-hmm. in terms of I'm we literally just admitted that I'm on two and a half hours of sleep. <laughs> a lot of that is because of my own decisions. That's, you know, that's yeah. uh, I'm, I'm working on stuff late at night. And that's, you know, again, it's easier to, you know, in a radio studio to say, 
yeah, you got to make this a priority is sometimes much harder in practice, which is all the more reason why I applaud him for doing it. Yeah. So the article here, it's at Yahoo. Uh, so I like the way the author ends it. He says, so welcome to the world, Millie. That's what they named the baby. This is what it looks like sometimes. Stick with your dad and mom and your family. Try to avoid the idiots. <laughs> That's pretty solid advice. That's not bad by Tim Brown, MLB columnist. So at least it seemed like most people were saying he at least made the right decision. But the fact that that was even up for debate is interesting. You might think differently than us. So we're going to put this up at the Common Good Radio Show on Facebook. That's the Common Good uh, radio show also on Twitter at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next out of Christianity Today, uh, an article about something fascinating that a church in Arkansas did uh, that you're going to want to hear. That's coming up next year on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Uh, alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're glad to have you join us. You can join us on Twitter at Common Good Talk. That's at Common Good Talk. Online at 1160hope.com or on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. That's the Common Good Radio Show. Go ahead and follow us there. And uh, you can also subscribe, rate, review, get our podcast. If you don't like listening to us between 4 and 6, maybe you don't like hearing the uh, the commercials or it's a bad time, you can uh, just you can listen to us at your convenience. So, mm, so convenient. <laughs> <laughs> and here to serve. You can listen to us whenever. You can do that wherever it is you find your podcast. Go ahead and subscribe, rate, review. Where there was uh, an interesting uh, ruling that just came down just this week that had to do with intervarsity. It says, yes, a Christian student group can require its leaders to be a Christian. That's the decision a judge reached last week in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship versus the University of Iowa, a lawsuit the Evangelical Christian Campus Ministry brought against the university and several of its leaders after the school booted InterVarsity and other religiously affiliated student groups for requiring their leaders to share their faith, uh, share their faiths. Those groups are also included Muslims, Sikhs, and Latter-day Saints, according to a statement for, from InterVarsity. Uh, we must have leaders who share our faith. InterVarsity Director uh, of External Relations Greg Zhao said in a written statement, no group, religious or secular, could survive with leaders who reject its values. We're grateful the court has st- stopped the university's religious discrimination, and we look forward to continuing our ministry on campus for years to come. Interestingly, at least three University of Iowa leaders are being held personally accountable to cover the costs of any damages awarded later to InterVarsity and the president of the university could still be found liable. This, uh, I was reading about this uh, some more, and it, it's just maybe I'm missing some nuance to the case that maybe we can you you can find here. But it just seems crazy that the university would be like, nope, a Christian doesn't have to be university. A Muslim, you don't have to be a Muslim to lead the Muslim group. Like this just seems. Uh, I don't know. I don't even get how this became an issue. This seems a bit crazy to me. Let, okay, so let me just read a little context, because we touched on this really briefly a couple of weeks ago, but people listening might not be totally familiar with the details. So the lawsuit came back in August 2018, after the University of Iowa claimed the university was violating the university's human rights policies by requiring leaders to affirm the organization's statement of faith. That policy prohibits discrimination based on race, creed, color, religion, sexual orientation, gender identity, or other attributes. In June 2018, the university deregistered InterVarsity for more than a month, returning it to good standing only after it sued. During that time, the University of Iowa limited InterVarsity's access to campus, froze its bank account, shut down its website, and labeled it defunct for lack of student interest, according to a statement from Beckett. Membership in the student group dropped from uh, the nearly 40 students to just over 20, the sharpest membership decline 
decline in over 20 years, according to the Legal Institute. The student group has been active at the university for 25 years, according to InterVarsity, which has similar groups on campuses across the country. All students are welcome to join InterVarsity, which hosts weekly Bible studies and monthly meetings for prayer, worship, and discussion. However, the leaders are required to affirm its statement of faith. So I'm kind of with you at the end of all of this. Yeah. It, it Maybe there is some nuance to this that we're missing. This does seem... Like a little open and shut. I get I get why. So the policy prohibits discrimination based on race, creed, color, religion, sexual orientation, gender identity, or other attributes. And it doesn't sound like the group was in any way prohibiting right. participation. That's the important based one. Based on any of those things, yeah. Yeah, like if they're like, you have to be a Christian to join this group, you could start to see how that could be problematic. I, I, I totally agree. But, but to, to lead, lead the group. Right. Uh, and what's interesting, the article goes on to say later that <clears throat> the university allows fraternities and sororities to admit only men and women, respectively. Uh, and Pi Kappa Phi requires members to be, quote, believers in God and exhibit the highest ideals of Christian manhood. Another group called Love Works requires its leaders to affirm the LGBTQ community and acknowledge that Jesus will be at the center of everything we do. Hmm. Uh, so there also seems to be some, uh, there seems to be some uh, um, non-equality here in, in how they put this out there. So I, I would love to know why they even went down this road, uh, because it also seems like it was an issue with some Muslim groups and Sikh right. groups. It seems like if you're going to have groups, you need to allow them to structure themselves. Again, I do believe there'd be an issue if they were like, oh, you can't sign our statement of faith. You can't be a part of this group. Right. Uh, but this seems like a pretty open and shut case of... of uh, religious freedom and and uh i'm not sure why this was an issue well here's how it concludes the university of iowa has since revised its student organization policy to allow student groups to require their leaders to quote agree to and support that group's beliefs yeah which again maybe we're missing something really big here that seems so obvious and such low-hanging fruit like yeah any group of any creed color persuasion whatever that seems like a reasonable expectation for the leaders to agree to and support. And if someone that here's the other thing, if that wasn't you, why would you want to be in leadership of that group in the first place? Right. Except to make a problem. And again, I realize that this is, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a principled argument. So it's not about somebody necessarily wanting to, it's about, you know, protecting against discrimination, which again is something that universities need to be doing. Absolutely. And I could, I could definitely see, like you said, if this this was discrimination or prohibition from participation in any kind, that obviously that becomes really problematic. Yeah. But for, I'm trying to think of like what a good equation would be. Like if we wanted somebody, I don't know, I can't even think of a good metaphor, someone to teach, but they actually had no interest in or no experience with the subject matter. Yeah. We're like, well, it's, it's open for anyone to teach. Anyone, want, anyone wants to teach engineering, just go for it. Yeah. I want, I want to lead the math club. Have you ever taken math? Nope. Nah, but I really <laughs> feel like I should. And you're like, oh, well. That's- I feel like it's discriminatory for you not to allow me. What, what do you do? I'm a history major. <laughs> like, right. Uh- right. And that's not a p- perfect one-to-one analogy, yeah, sure, but it, sure. it does. I don't know. I do we are we seeing stuff like this more often? Is this? A, I feel like we're having conversations like this more often than we did two years ago. It feels like it, but it, it's. I don't get uh, why a university that wants to be about inclusion, right? All universities tend to be wanting to be about inclusion. Why they would want to stamp down on any group? Like that's what's the confusing thing to me here about well, the leadership. Well, if it was a hate group, okay, that's a good point. I guess I'm talking about more. 
uh, groups that are kind of on an equal footing, but maybe maybe I'm biased. Maybe there are people who think the same group, but that's not even why they went after them, right? Right. right. Maybe deep down they wanted to shut InterVarsity down. Yeah, that possibly could well be it. But uh, from uh, uh, assuming they didn't want to do that, you're just like I, that. Seems like a weird kind of spot to stand. Yeah. The same way, uh, you know, if they have an LGBTQ group, uh, I wouldn't be like, hey, yeah, you should let uh, somebody who doesn't believe that you know, in LGBTQ rights to be able to lead the group because there seems to be an agenda there. There seems to be something. I don't just seems like a really odd move. I I read the story looking like, okay, where's the controversial angle in this? And and it quite frankly also looks like the judge came down that way because the judge is holding the university and the people who made this decision literally liable uh, for costs. Like that's a big step. I was reading another article where they're like, yeah, that's a, that's like a ringing kind of, um, uh, move there by the judge to be like, hey, yeah, not only are you wrong, but you're wrong to the point that you got to pay for this message you put up. Yeah, that part actually was sort of surprising to me, to be honest. And I don't know. It's interesting that we were just talking about like the assumed religious persecution of like high school students yeah. and how it seems to be, at least based on the peer research, like, hey, it's not nearly as uh, catastrophic as it's often made to sound. But then you come to stories like this and you're like, all right, so what do we do with this though? Or something like a, a group seemingly without any kind of merit uh, or any kind of grounding was really being the, the threat of being choked out or smoked out of, of the university organization is, uh, I don't know. That's something that I think I, I'm not quite sure what to do with this one in particular, because it doesn't seem to have a lot of teeth, Yeah, but like, does this ruling affect other future rulings? Do you think like, does this oh. story have effects for other campuses and other universities struggling through the same thing? Or is it sort of like just a, a one-off every time? I, it doesn't seem like a one-off. I think you are right. Out there, there have been some other universities that are not coming to mind uh, that have been kind of clamping down on some of their Christian organizations. That seems to be more more regular, more of a trend. Right. Uh, and I think we, as people of faith, need to wrestle with: okay, what do you do with that? What do you when you're uh, you and I both went to Christian colleges, but if um, you know if you were at the University of Illinois, like what is it? mean to live out your faith and be a part of something like university while still being a part of the uh, of the um of the college campus i think those are going to be things that christians uh that christ followers are going to need to wrestle with here in the coming years because it does seem more yeah I, I i i don't know that for sure it just does seem more well I, i'd love to know what we can be doing as the church to like yeah. how are we supposed to interact with these stories and how and again like the conclusion of the story i imagine most would say is positive. It always does pain me a little bit when I see that Christian organization that to sue a university yep. or sue a family like that always leaves a little bit of a knot in my stomach. But again, maybe the, the end goal was worth it. Yeah. I don't, I don't maybe know. It seemed like it was, I agree with you on that, but it seems like it was necessary. In yeah. Sense. So, right. Well, coming up next, uh, seven things that I love this phrase, extroverted introverts wish you understood extroverted introverts, mm-hmm. and that is not even an oxymoron. That is a real thing. That's right. We are going to discuss that coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. This is one of your more dancing songs. Yeah, which you wouldn't think listening to it. It feels very sit in the corner and brood. No, I feel I'm, I'm okay. I like this song. I'm not saying I don't like it. I like brooding. So this is a brooding song for you, okay? Yeah, maybe not. The John brooding song, dancing song. 
Yes. <laughs> Classic Enneagram 4. <laughs> this song is everything and nothing. <laughs> Art is a lie. Art is a lie. Nothing is real. <laughs> Can you name that reference, Brian? No. Oh. Oh. We, can't, we can't say who because we can't. Because then I'll go watch it. Yeah. Art's still a lie. Nothing's still real. It's probably not worth I mean, it is really. Never okay. mind. Go ahead. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Uh, that voice you heard over there was PJ, our producer, producer John. And uh, we're glad that you are here with us today. Well, Relevant Magazine, we talked about them earlier today. They came out with what I found to be a fascinating list because they are the five, in their opinion, most misused and abused Bible verses. I'm a little nervous to read these because I'm wondering where I have misused and abused these along the <laughs> well, way. We've talked about this before, though. Yep. We both have, I'm sure. Yep. It says the word of God is, absol- is an absolute necessity. Uh, all 66 books were inspired using 40 human instruments. Uh, Orthodox Christianity believes that in Scripture, in their original manuscripts, are without error and fault. But he says the Bible is not merely a collection of quotes or one-liners, but is literally the Word of God. When the Scriptures speak, God is speaking. That is why we must approach the Bible with extreme care and intentionality. How it is read, memorized, and quoted is of utmost importance. He says, however, Christians often misunderstand, misquote, or misuse verses in the Bible. For example, we may turn to the concordance in the back of wanting to find a verse on a particular subject, read the one suggested, find a favorite one, and then start quoting it anyway, (laughs) tattooing it on our forearm or whatever else. So this is their list. There's going to be others, I'm sure, but uh, this, I'm guessing, is going to be a little humorous and a little convicting. So, uh, <laughs> Can I say something first as a quick yes, caveat? And I've mentioned this before, I think. Uh, Warren Anderson, a dear friend, mentor, friend of the show, been on the show. Um, I made a post something like this a couple months ago, and as he often does, was sort of like, I see what you're saying, however... If an out of context verse is still bringing some kind of like hope or peace uh-huh. to someone, is it not still valuable? And I was really convicted. I was like, you're totally right. I'm being such a curmudgeon. So like I, all of this with a grain of salt, I think the article is right. But it is also, I think, worth saying that like it doesn't, you know, what I'll often say, the Bible was written for us, but not to us. I yeah. still fully believe that good scholarship is really important. However, sometimes even out of verse context, out of context verses can still have. Absolutely. Meaning. All right. Absolutely. So I'll kick us off. You probably heard this one, Brian. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Mm-hmm. Out of context. This verse has nothing to do with dunking a basketball, hitting a game-winning home run, bench-pressing a bus, winning the lottery, or closing a business deal. In context. The Apostle Paul is under house arrest awaiting his trial where he may possibly be put to death for preaching the resurrection of Jesus. However, instead of being defeated by unfortunate circumstances, Paul is using the opportunity to teach the young church in Philippi that he can endure any Mm -hmm. and every circumstance, ups and downs, highs and lows, because he has the strength that only comes from Christ. His supernatural strength to endure all seasons and situations is always with Paul because the Holy Spirit of Christ is always with him, even in prison. Mm. So good. Number two, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. <laughs> Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. Here Out we of go. context, Here we go. this verse is usually quoted as an encouragement to one another when there is low attendance for a worship <laughs> service or given as a benediction during a prayer meeting. In fact, if someone really wants to stretch this verse, they use it as a justification for skipping church to quote worship with their family at home right. while the football game is on in the background. I like this guy. He's pretty snarky. <laughs> 
in context, this verse falls specifically within the context of church discipline. That's right. And dealing with wayward believers. It is meant to be an encouragement to church leaders during tough times of loving confrontation to say that God would be present with the two to three witnesses as they are intentional in correcting and restoring a fallen brother or sister. Okay, so I know I was all just like lovey-dovey. This is one of them for me, though. It is. Because I hear it all the time. Hey, what the word says. When two or three two, are gathered. Two or three are gathered. There's like, two of us here. Yeah. <laughs> I always want to be in the back like, it's about discipline. It's about church discipline. It's not a call to worship. Excuse me. <laughs> I'm tapping on the microphone. Hello, I have something to say. I'm that annoying guy. I realized. No, it's right. helpful. Jeremiah 29, 11, I knew it was going to make the cut. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Out of context, this verse is typically given to someone as a sentiment during a difficult time or on a graduation card after crossing a stage, receiving his or her diploma or degree. As a standalone promise, it appears as though God exists to make to make us all popular, rich, healthy, <laughs> and powerfully well-known. God declares the American dream over my life. In context. This incredible promise is given not to an individual, but to a people group, Hebrews exiled in Babylon. God promised that he had not given up on his people and that even though things looked dire, they still had a future and a hope. So the word, quote, prosper doesn't refer to money or material blessings. It refers to physical and spiritual salvation. It's a beautiful promise that God is not done with his people and that their future and hope were only found in him. The promise is that he will see his plans through mm. and his people get to be a part of them. Yeah, I like, oh, the, good. I like the in context one better. That one's yeah, good. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> Number four, judge not that you be not judged. Matthew chapter seven, verse one. <laughs> Out of context. Here we go. We're living in a day that values tolerance above all, unless, of course, someone disagrees with our beliefs, <laughs> lifestyles, or opinions. <laughs> then we're extremely intolerant. We may even boldly shout, only God can judge me. However, however, this is Tupac theology, not biblical theology. <laughs> you said that. What, do you know who Tupac is, at least? I do okay. know who Tupac is, yes. Yes, or was. Yes. Oh, gosh. Or still is. Oh, mm. <laughs> Can you tell I like to listen to conspiracy theorist podcasts? <laughs> yeah, right. In context, this verse is not a warning against speaking out against certain actions or behaviors. In fact, in other places of scripture, we're told we'll know them by their fruit. Mm -hmm. We're also commanded in the Great Commission to make disciples, which right. includes helping others wage war against sin. However, Matthew 7 is a warning against self-righteousness and hypocrisy. If we're going to correct someone, then we must expect to be held to the same standard. If we judge with aggression, then we can expect to be judged with aggression. Even though we remove the plank in our own eye, Jesus still says we must remove the speck in our Ooh, brothers. I want to snap for that one. That's, that's, <laughs> that'll preach. That's good. All right. You ready for number five? I am. If you're just joining us, what's the title of this? The five most misused and abused Bible verses. I'd love to know, by the way, if anyone wants to add a sixth, the seventh or an eighth. But number five in this article, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nation. I will be exalted in the earth. Okay, you ready? <laughs> Psalm 4610. This one hurts a little oh, close to home. Boy. Yep. Out of context, honestly, the most common travesty committed toward this verse is that only a piece of this verse is quoted on coffee mugs, desktop screensavers with roses in the background, and paintings with a mountain. You'll see a section of this verse carved out of the whole thought. Be still and know that I am God. In context, here we go. The greatest justice we can provide for this verse is to actually quote it in its entirety. What an incredible comfort and reminder to know that we can be still and know that God is in control. As his people, we can rest in the truth that he will be exalted in the nations across the earth and there's nothing that can stop God from accomplishing his will. 
Everything God does and says is intentional. Every word in scripture is on purpose and placed in specific context that he desires. Therefore, we must be careful with the word of God and be intentional in how we speak his word. Mm. I think that is a great. And then he ends with Second Timothy 3. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Yep. That's a good article. man. That is really good. Uh, guilty as charged on the screensaver, just saying, be still and know that I'm God. <laughs> no. Back in the day. Not really? currently. Okay. Not currently. <laughs> but you remember like more when you had like your desktop and the screensaver, it would just kind of like slowly go across, you uh-huh. know, and, like mine every now and then as a reminder, it would just come across, be still and know that I'm God. And I actually think that's a good example of what your friend said. Yeah. Uh, right. Taken out of context doesn't mean not helpful. Right. There, be still, encouraging people to be still and know that, they, right. that God is, is there, you know, totally. that's helpful. It just might not be what exactly Psalm 46. Well, I, getting think, at. I think preachers should more regularly remind people that there were not verses and chapters like there, this, mm-hmm. that, that I think that small nod to the fact that like this was, this was a letter. This was an Oracle. This was part of a lineage. This was part of a genealogy, like including even those little touch points that we remember. Yeah. This was written by a, a historian named Luke, I think helps illuminate yeah. like, I'm not anti-verse and chapters. I think that's can be really helpful, but it can kind of unfortunately chop stuff up in a way that I think leads us to some of this proof texting and pulling quotables yeah, out of context yeah. or like forcing a translation. You know, Bible Gateway has 47 translations. You're like, what's the word? What's the one that has the what's version the of this works? that I like this yeah. the most? Like, that I think all can be really, really dangerous. Oh, that's that's convicting. And uh, that is also really funny. Yeah, I remember going to Wheaton and taking biblical interpretation for the first time. Yeah. And being like, what? Wait, what? <laughs> like having what? Exactly. Just, right. The mind blown, and that. But you're still a Christian, though. You survived it, right? Christian, like it was good. We don't need to be afraid of those things. That's right. Was helpful. So, uh, check out those five verses on our Facebook page. Maybe you've got some to add to it. I'm sure that could get funny or a little convicting as well. So, (laughs) go ahead and respond and give us some more. Well, coming up next, the hilarity that is the interweb insanity. The end of our show is coming up next year on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. All right, friends, that music can mean only one thing. It should only mean one thing. The show is ending, but don't don't bail on us no, yet. No, don't do it. We got some interweb insanity, and if you're just joining us wondering what the heck is interweb yes. insanity, what is it, Brian? Give us a little tea, a little taste. So are you say tea? I'm drinking tea all the Give time. Us a little here. tea. Yeah, you're <laughs> drinking thirty ounces of tea. I've got a Trenta here today, people. I'm bouncing off the walls. But from you Starbucks. also got a, a second one for free. So it's a great story. I was at Starbucks. Is I'll it do a great it real story? fast. I was at Starbucks <laughs> and I was going to get some work done before coming up here. I bought a Trenta, thinking that I would drink some there and then have some for the show. And after I purchased it, she said, oh, by the way, it's a buy one, get one free today. I said, I will take my free Trenta. So I'm going to Trenta's. Yeah, it's, it's a... We have very different obscene. opinions of what a great story is. It is obscene. <laughs> so what we do here is our producers, PJ and Keith Conrad, they pick stories. You and I have no idea what they are. Right. And then after we read said stories, we will hear sound clips, movie drops, whatever else it might be. We have no idea what they are. Sometimes we laugh. Sometimes we're appalled like you are. Like if you're mad about them, remember, be mad at them. Well, okay, and in his in his defense, PJ did just come come in and say, These are all Keith today. And Keith, you can't see because your back's to the booth. He just stuck his head in and gave us two thumbs up, which makes me very so worried. So nervous. I'm very worried. This might be the last show we ever do. So <laughs> why don't you take it away, Brian Fromm? Ooh, first one's out of France. 
Researchers create smartphone case made of artificial human skin. Oh, gosh. Why? <laughs> Why? Researchers say, uh, oh, hold on. This phone cover might give you some people the heebie-jeebies. Me. It's I'm, made I'm that from person. artificial skin, and it's not the only one. Gross. Researchers say they have also developed a faux skin prototype for other devices. The idea is to give the user some lifelike sensations. What? The phone case can be tickled and pinched just like human flesh. I'm so uncomfortable. The artificial I'm so skin no. is made from silicone Sorry. and sensors that give it that nope, real life done. We're look done. and feel. Uh, the guy who developed it developed the artificial skin for mobile devices. I also made a nice touchpad. Oh, Skin-on interfaces are devices no. that augment devi- existing devices with realistic skin. When we interact with others, we use skin as interfaces. Why However, are you saying skin the way you're saying the it? The objects of mediated communication, such as the smartphone, still has a cold interface that doesn't allow natural interaction input. In this project, I wanted to make available the perfect human interface that is the skin for existing devices. It rubs the lotion on its skin no. or else gets the hose See, again. That was my biggest fear. <laughs> I knew that was going to be the drop, and now I need a nightlight in my room. Okay, uh, Canada. What do we call it? Canada. America's, America's top hat. No, that's Wisconsin to uh, Illinois. Okay. Canada is like the loft over a really great party telling them to turn the music down a little bit. <laughs> Does that sound about right? Yes. Shoplifter sure. mistakes unmarked police car for getaway car. <laughs> nice. Holy cow. A Windsor woman. Ah, it's Windsor. That makes sense. Is facing <laughs> charges after she got into a police car instead of her getaway car at Windsor Crossings. LaSalle police say that around 3 p.m. on Monday, first off, she's in the, in the middle of the day, that's not a good idea. Monday, October 21st, 2019, they were called to a retail store at Windsor Crossings for a report of an adult female shoplifter. The suspect was described as female, wearing a, <laughs> wearing a pink hijab and carrying a baby seat covered with a blanket. A detective in plain sight, uh, in plain clothes, sorry, responded to the area and set up outside the store in his vehicle waiting for the, su- the suspect to exit. Upon leaving the store, the suspect walked directly to the detective's unmarked police vehicle and tried to get into the rear seat, mistaking it for the vehicle that was supposed to pick her up. The detective <laughs> exited his vehicle and identified himself as a LaSalle police officer and arrested the suspect for theft and possession of the stolen property. That was really stupid. That one's, that one's pretty bad. That, that was, was bad. That was not great. Next one's out of New York. He got drunk, not because he drank, but because he ate. Okay. (laughs) For years after taking antibiotics in 2011 for a thumb injury, a previously active and healthy man says he suffered from depression, brain fog, memory loss, and aggressiveness. Then, after a DWI arrest, those around him, including medical staff and cops, became convinced he was a secret drinker. But he denied consuming any alcohol, despite the high blood alcohol content he registered when he was arrested. Now, NBC News reports on the man's case study, which vindicates him with a diagnosis. Auto brewery syndrome, a rare condition also known as drunkenness disease, in which fermenting microbes such as bacteria or fungi in one's gut convert the sugar into carbohydrates, then into ethanol or the sugar in carbohydrates into ethanol, which then leads to elevated blood alcohol content levels. Research in the BMJ Open Gastroenterology Journal notes all of the 46-year-olds' uncharacteristic symptoms. Are you drunk right now? I went for it. I went for it. Just I went for that word, and then I blew by it. It flared up after he ate, leaving him unable to function, the author of the study said. I heard alcohol makes you stupid. No, I'm... Doesn't. No, it doesn't. What did the mushrooms say to the broccoli when the broccoli said he couldn't come to the party? 
You're a fun guy. Why not? I'm a fun guy. There you go. Um, Gastroenterology. That's the word I was going for there. You just really wanted to redeem yourself I did. I did. All right, Georgia. This photo is amazing. It is good. This inflatable Christmas vacation RV is peak holiday yard decor. If you're planning to cover your house in Christmas lights in tribute to Clark Griswold this year, why not pay a little homage to Cousin Eddie, too, with his inflatable Christmas Vacation RV? National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation is a hilarious holiday classic. I totally agree. And possibly the most honest depiction of spending Christmas with family in cinematic history. Sorry, Hallmark. So having a little salute to the film... And it's notoriously awful in the funniest way. Cousin Eddie is the perfect way to celebrate the holiday. I legitimately want this in this my life. Good. The inflatable RV stands about four feet tall and is pre-lit with energy efficient. Well, at least it's energy efficient LED lights. So there's no way the neighbors won't see it. It's also self-inflatable. So all you have to do is just plug it in, preferably as your family gathers around to watch and provide a drum roll sound effect. So when did you get the uh, tenement on wheels? Oh, that there, that, uh, that's an RV. <laughs> <laughs> good, I want to go watch it right Would now. Would you choose National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation or Elf? What is your Christmas movie um, of choice? Christmas Vacation, okay, for sure. It's also only $200 at Home Depot right now. There you go. Last one, and it seems like all of mine are, have to do with drunkenness. California. <sighs> Take the hint, dr- Ryan. Yeah, I know. Drunk Santa arrested after police found him in car. I was drunk and made some poor choices. <laughs> Christmas came early. A lot of Christmas today, too. Christmas came early for one California man, dubbed the drunk Santa suit criminal. And he's most definitely on local law enforcement's naughty list. Marie police arrested the festive and apparently impatient man Tuesday after they found him inside his car at around 7 a.m. The man who has not yet been identified appeared to be under the influence of alcohol or drugs or both. Police took the social media to share a message from the drunk Santa. He said, it said, Dear Santa, I'm sorry I stole your red suit. I was drunk and made some poor choices. I know it's October and it's hot. (laughs) Too hot for this suit. But I was drunk and made poor choices. You are really Santa, right? No, I'm an accountant. I wear this thing as a fashion statement, all right? That's a real weird note to end on today, isn't it? Yeah, or somewhat appropriate. (laughs) What? What is appropriate about it? I don't know. Drunk Santa and drinking seem to be all of those. (laughs) Christmas vacation. I think I see now why Keith was giving us the two enthusiastic thumbs up. It was very Wayne's World of him. He was really amped. Now I know what to get you for Christmas, though. Oh, please do. Oh, the the human skin case? No. (laughs) Oh, I thought we were going RV. I had forgotten about that one. Oh, now you won't. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, I'm going to try to forget that and come back tomorrow. Hope you'll join us from 4 to 6 p.m. on The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 